let's say you've got a million dollars equity in your home, in your name, you would then do a deed of gift or something like that to gift a million dollars to the trust. And then the trust would then agree to loan that money back to you and then would take a million dollar mortgage. So your personal balance sheet has gone from million dollar house, zero liabilities, million dollars equity to million dollar house, million dollar loan, zero equity. So you've effectively moved, you've shifted the equity out of your personal name into the trust, or you could even have shifted it to a spouse or something, but most people use a trust. Your personal balance sheet has gone to zero. The bottom line is if you're going to do this sort of an arrangement, you you need to get your documentation right and it needs to be by the book, you know, registering the mortgages, delivering documents. Ideally, there would be cash movements through bank accounts that could be pointed to as actual real evidence of value passing. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 397 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. How can you protect your personal assets from creditors, the ATO, and so on? How can you reduce the risk to your personal assets? Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide will tell you how and discuss the five layers of asset protection with you. Neither protects you 100%, but they all add up. Now, just quickly. In the interview, we just talk of four layers since we count the corporate veil and the use of structure silos as one. You might remember the structuring we discussed in episode 396 last week, where we went through the different silos, how, where you put different parts of your business into different operating companies, and then you have the cash with the holding, and you have expensive equipment in an asset company, and then you have your staff and HR and services in a service company, you might remember these structural silos. So we're counting these separately, and hence we have five layers, but in the interview, we actually count them together. We put them together, so we just came up with four, but all this is just semantics. So let's jump right in. So here's Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide about the four or five layers of asset protection. If you look at services as a service provider, they very often, when they start out in life, of course, it's a nice problem to have when you own your own home. But very often, you know, you start out in life as an employee, you buy your main residence at some stage together with your spouse. And then at some stage later in your life, you set up your own business. And then, of course, you have this problem that the main residence is in joint names. And the first thing I would like to cover with you is that it's actually not so easy to then move the main residence from joint names into a single name because then you actually attract stamp duty in New South Wales. You are only exempt from stamp duty if at the end the asset is held by both spouses. But if you're moving it from joint to a single spouse, then you're not exempt by stamp duty. And that, of course, is a big hurdle for asset protection for service providers, correct? Yeah, massive. Yeah, it is. In South Australia, you can definitely move the property 100% between spouses uh, without stamp duty for your primary residence. And I think you can in Victoria as well. Quote me on that, but certainly last time I looked, you could. But I think in New South Wales and other states, you can only go from one name to both names, but not the other way around. Yeah. I think in Victoria, there is some funny little technical quirky. Mm, uh, yeah, 
that yeah. if you do it one way, then it doesn't work. And if you do it another way, it, mm -hmm. it does work. Yeah. So Victoria is kind of 50-50, depending mm -hmm. on whether you pay attention to this quirky detail or not. Mm -hmm. And then New South Wales is definitely not exempt when you move it from no. joint yes. to single and the other ones who probably don't know. Apologies yeah. to the rest of Australia. <laughs> um, so that basically put service providers who own their main residence jointly and now have set out and set up their own company, that puts them at great risk of asset protection. Yes, you have your pro professional indemnity insurance, but you always kind of have your house on the line. And so I would love to talk with you about asset protection trust because I understand that you can basically set up a trust that then holds a mortgage over the main residence. So if you ever get attacked by a client or similar, then your part of the house is basically protected or the whole house is protected. I would love to go through that with you and understand the details. Yeah. Once again, just talking about the very high level policy, I personally find it quite offensive and, and it's been something that's been a bugbear my entire professional life that for whatever reason, people in government think that it's perfectly acceptable to require specialist doctors and lawyers and accountants and architects and physiotherapists and stuff to go to work every day and risk their family home, even a family home that's been held in someone else's name under the changes which made the bankruptcy provisions some years ago. But yet, you know, your highly paid government bureaucrats and your highly paid, you know, large corporate executives, often earning a lot more than these professionals that we're talking about, don't don't expose anything, you know, in fact have statutory protections. And I just think that at some point someone's got to stand back and realize that the pendulum's gone too far. So that's my little rant. But I think it's worth saying that it's totally and utterly unreasonable that any strategy or attempt to protect the family home is seen as some sort of a antisocial behavior on the part of business owners and particularly small business owners and consultants. So I just I think that's that's atrocious. Unfortunately, you know, we're sort of skipping to the end, but you know what what the courts have been sent mixed signals, but we'll come back to that perhaps after we've talked about how the structures work. So, so let's say someone comes to me and says, I've been working as a senior executive in this business and now I want to go out on my own and become you know, a consultant or set up my own business or whatever. The first thing I'll say to them is set up a company <laughs> because if you can't afford to spend $1,000 setting up a limited liability company to carry on your business, then you shouldn't really be going into business. You know, People say, oh, I'm just going to go in my own name for a little while and see how it goes. You should not be starting if you can't. If you if you don't think a thousand dollars of structural insurance is worth spending, then you actually don't have the right mindset to be in business. So that's what I say to them at the outset. And then the ones that really have the difficulty it are like the doctors of the classic these days. I mean, you know, where they have to be personally on the hook. You know, they're providing their their expertise. There's often some professional regulations that mean that they need to be the person who's providing those services, and they gen they tend to be services of a high risk nature. So they sort of almost go hand in hand because the reason there were these professional obligations to practice in your own name was that the government thought that that was a good way, and also the professional bodies thought that that was a good way to make sure that people took care. So the idea was that if you had a company as a doctor, you would be careless and you wouldn't really care because there was no personal, you had no skin in the game. Whereas if we force you to do it in your own name and you're personally liable for everything, then you'll take a lot more care. And that was really the reason why lawyers weren't allowed to incorporate and accountants weren't allowed to incorporate and architects weren't allowed to incorporate. That was the reason behind those things. Now, what 
what I think has happened over the years is there's there's been a realization that that's pretty draconian and, and silly approach that people don't just take care because they're personally liable. Uh, there's a lot more to it. And the professional bodies really responded in one main way and was to say, let us have, or we will let our members have limited liability, but we'll we'll match that with a more rigorous professional code, things like continuing professional education, minimum insurance, minimum practice standards, which will then accredit our members to have. So you'll, you'll see, for example, with the lawyers, you've got, you can now incorporate, and that's only a relatively recent thing. I think the last state was 2018, so it's very relatively new. But you don't just get to incorporate, you actually have to incorporate, but then you have to do the course and then you have to have minimum amount of insurance and all these sort of things so that so that the protection, there's there's adequate protection there for, for the consumer. So the instances where people actually have to trade in their own name is certainly a lot. There's a lot fewer of those instances than there used to be. So my first advice is find out whether or not you need to trade in your own name. And if you don't, then don't. <laughs> That's sort of the best thing. So if you are in a position where you have to, then life becomes a lot more difficult. And the other scenario where people worry about personal liability is that even though you may be able to trade through a company, there are, I think at last count, well over 700 instances where as a director, you could potentially be liable individually rather than have the protection of the, the company veil, the corporate veil. So they are things like you know environmental issues and HR issues. Things which which have a huge potential, both financial and potentially even you know, criminal or civil liability sort of exposure. So the two categories of people who come to us are the are the very small category of people who aren't allowed to incorporate, and also the much larger category of people who can incorporate but are still appropriately concerned that even with limited liability of a company, they're still exposed to significant personal liability just by virtue of all of the laws that get passed all the time, piercing through that liability protection. It's basically, yeah, for both those, the small yep. ones that can't incorporate and the big yep. ones who have incorporated but still yep. see exposure because yep. the DPNs are so wide ranging that it is quite frightening to just hide behind, and hide has a bad connotation, but to basically yep. seek protection behind the corporate veil because that veil feels very thin. It is, yeah. So then the question is, what what happens is, so has started out, which is, Okay, I'm I'm leaving the protection of a big company or maybe government work, and I'm now setting up my own business. And I've accumulated it. I might be having a time in life where you've accumulated assets, and the obvious one is the family home. And the question then becomes, well, you know, can I move this asset out of my name because I don't want to have it in the line of fire? There's something about, you know, I, I don't care if my business fails and I'm professionally embarrassed and I have to crawl back into a job somewhere, but I don't want my family out on the streets. So. Unfortunately, the government policy is that everything's stacked up against you being out on the streets without a house. Uh, so what can you do? And people look at their house and they go, can I move it? So that's, that's sort of the first possibility. And then from a capital gains tax, that's no problem. Stamp duty we've talked about often prohibitive, particularly in somewhere like New South Wales, where it might be $100,000, $200,000 to move, to move your house. Some people still pay that money. So even before you get to the concept of say, a gift and loan back and all those sort of strategies, even if you do transfer your house and pay the stamp duty and move that asset out of your own name, that's not necessarily the end of the the argument as far as that house being exposed to being clawed back if your business fails or you become personally liable under a, under a directed liability. And, you know, there's been a number of cases over 
recent years and really spanning back, you know, quite some time, that seek to invoke these provisions within the Bankruptcy Act, which can claw back transactions that are considered to be at an undervalue or are considered to have the motive of defeating creditors. So that's really the, but if you fail and a bankruptcy steps into your shoes, they will be looking at those provisions to try and claw back whatever assets they can, even ones that you don't own at that point. So I think it's worth talking about this intermediate step. Yes, you might, when we talk about the next structure, still have the asset in your name. That's one thing. But there's certainly also instances where you don't have the asset in your name and those assets are still exposed. And the category of those assets has been expanded over time during the sort of 2000s to include assets that you have transferred to spouses, transferred to trusts, and even assets that you have contributed to so far as potentially, say, paying a mortgage or something like that, and at the same time lived in a house or benefited from that that property. So just that alone, my advice to to business people is to very carefully account for a number of things. First of all, at the time of the transfer, clearly having a record of your solvency at that point in time, clearly documenting the transfer prior to setting up the company or as far away from the commencement of the activity that may ultimately give rise to the liability. So people sort of say to me, where's the line? Or can they go back forever? Some people say, yeah, 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 you know, it's pointless doing anything. I always say, well, that's, that's just a silly way to, to behave. The, the advice is the further away anything you do to protect assets is from the commencement of an activity that may give rise to the liability that you're ultimately concerned with, the better. So if that's five days or five months or five years, five years is definitely going to be better. So if you're thinking about one day leaving a job and starting up your own business, that's that's something that you think is going to be part of your career, then not acquiring the house in your name in the first place or moving it out of your name well before even leaving your existing job is certainly a good strategy. And when you say commencement of activity, do you mean a commencement of your own business or do you mean commencement of working for the client or customer who then ultimately leads to the um, court case? Yeah. So unfortunately, you, you can't help but get into the actual cases at that point. And the unfortunate thing about the cases is that the judges are very emotional or emotive other than principle-based. And that's a problem in Australian courts generally. And what I'm saying there is that if the person who is in a court case is an old lady you know, who's dealing with their son, then you'll find that the court reaches one conclusion. But if the court case is about sisters and brothers having a fight over over family inheritance, you'll get another you'll get another outcome. And they're basically dealing with the same issues, but they're not they're not applying consistent principles. So But is that allowed? I thought you always had to follow previous cases. Yes, you should, but it's Every case is different, is unique. On its facts and whatever. And, you know, if you look at all the bankruptcy cases and all the bankruptcy reforms that happened during the 2000s, that was all based around those barristers that didn't pay tax for 20 years. And of course, that's not the rest of us. You know, that, that's an absolute fringe case on which there was a massive overreaction, both through the courts and also through parliament. And then we all got these crazy, very difficult rules to apply. But anyway, once again, I don't want to turn the whole thing into a rant. But when you say, when is the critical time between the thing that ultimately gives rise to the liability that you're concerned with and the transfer of the asset. And if you read the legislation, it's really that my view is that it should be that the liability, that if you transfer an asset at the time that the event giving rise to the liability has already occurred, then you've got a problem. 
But that's not how the cases, some of the cases have gone. They have said that you have looked at you basically, the, the fact that you enter into a dangerous activity and take precautions close to doing that meant that the, the primary motive of you moving the assets was to ultimately defeat a creditor that wasn't even in existence at that point in time. Rather than have the debate about what is right and wrong and where that exact line is, I think it's a, I think you need to adopt the general principle, which is that the further away I arrange my affairs such that I have less assets in my name, the better. And I don't think there is a magical line. I think the magical line should be, you should have to identify the event giving rise to liability and the, and the moving of the asset, but that's not what the cases say. So it's, it's some point before that. And I think it really depends on how culpable the courts think you are or how bad you've been, which is a very hard thing to give advice when you're a lawyer on, but that unfortunately is the state of the authorities. They're quite mixed. Now, before we speak more about the five layers of asset protection, Here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. So there are basically four things to try to protect your private assets, especially your main residence. Mm -hmm. The first one is, and I liked it, that you said structural insurance. You set up a company and move the assets into the company. That gives you this corporate wheel, and I liked it that you called it the structural insurance. Then you have basically contractual insurance and that is basically just your insurance contract like a professional indemnity contract. Coming back to structural insurance, none of these that I'm going to list now actually give you 100% waterproof protection because the setup of a company, the corporate veil can be pierced through with a DPN. The contractual insurance through a professional indemnity insurance, for example, can be pierced through with all the exclusions that you have in the insurance contract. Then the next protection is to move it to a different entity. Again, the Bankruptcy Act might counteract that and still claw the asset back. And then the fourth measure, which we haven't touched on yet, is setting up an asset protection trust. And I know very little about how this works, how this is actually done. So if you think we have covered the first three sufficiently and you think it's time to talk about the asset protection trust, then I, that would be great. Yep, sure. So the concept with an asset protection trust, and I, I don't know if I've really ever called it, call it something a little bit more. Um, yes, please tell me what it's actually called. I called it an asset protection trust because I didn't know what it was called. So I yeah, no, I, I would definitely call it an equity strip, which is a little bit more provocative, but it effectively describes what, what, what the strategy does. And the idea is that you've got an asset in your name that you can't move. And it's not just your home, we've, where we've seen this also is People who have shares in their own names, often parents or grandparents that have had companies in their name for a long time that have got significant accumulated profits or inherent capital gains, so they can't move that family business out of their name. Yes. Or, for example, when you have two spouses and one spouse is on the top margin of tax rate and the other spouse is not on a much lower tax rate, but has these professional risks, then you might still want to hold the share portfolio in the exposed spouse's name. Yes. Even just to avoid the top marginal tax rate. 
Absolutely. Yes. We've got the asset we can't move, but we, we've got this equity or this value in our name, which is attached to our hands, which could potentially be taken off us if we, if we became bankrupt or there was claims against us. So the strategy is that you set up another entity, which is often a discretionary trust, which is where the asset protection trust concept comes in. People like to name things because they do. You then look to move the equity value out of your name into that trust. And when I talk about equity value, it's very much like an equity loan. You know, when you go to the bank and you draw down equity against your house, your house has got some equity value in it and you're trying to get that value into a trust rather than perhaps buying another property, which is what you would do if you went and got an equity loan from the bank. You really want to gift that equity value to the trust. And then because you haven't really moved, you know, the equity value is still sitting in your property, your trust needs to then give you that equity back in a different form, which is usually in the form of a secured loan. So it's sometimes referred to as a gift and loan back or a gift and secured loan back or an equity strip something like that. So hopefully people can get their heads around that without a whiteboard. So you've got, let's say you've got a million dollars equity in your home, in your name, you would then do a deed of gift or something like that to gift a million dollars to the trust. And then the trust would then agree to loan that money back to you and then would take a million dollar mortgage. So your personal balance sheet has gone from million dollar house, zero liabilities, million dollars equity to million-dollar house, million-dollar loan, zero equity. So you've effectively moved, you've shifted the equity out of your personal name into the trust, or you could even have shifted it to a spouse or something, but most people use a trust, and your personal life, your personal balance sheet has gone to zero or something something close to zero. Do the courts accept that? Because we were talking about, you know, before we were talking about that the asset should be as far away as possible from the exposed individual and as early as possible. So what if you're already running your practice, but you now want to do this? Can you still do this? Do the courts accept it, especially since there's a gift involved? They have accepted it in some scenarios and haven't accepted it in others. So the, the courts can either accept that the arrangement is genuine and then they will respect it, or they can consider it to be a sham and then they will ignore it. So, And what makes it genuine or a sham? Yeah, so it's that, but that's quite an important thing because it's 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 a very it's black and white. It's quite a high bar for a court to say something is a sham. So I think that's worth noting, and that the cases that that you see in this regard really do meet that high threshold. You know, in the sense of the courts being able to sort of say it's a sham. There's really probably two cases. I mean, there's lots of different cases. And I haven't really refreshed myself on all of them, probably to the extent that I need to. But I'll, I'll just there was two Supreme Court single judge. Queensland cases. One was a like a family provision claim, and then another one was a, a mortgage between a mother and a son. So there were two different cases, both single judges, different judges, same Supreme Court. And one basically reached the conclusion that it was probably a sham, but ultimately didn't need to determine whether it was a sham because the documentation was poorly done. And basically the parties agreed that the documentation actually wasn't properly put in place. So that they didn't get to the court actually didn't get to say that it was a sham, but they they said by way of obiter that if they had to look at it, they'd still say it was a sham. And, and that was the family protection claim, correct? That, was, uh, that, that would have been a sham if it had That was the family protection, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And then the other one was where a mother had lent money to a son over over the years with a very overt purpose of asset protection, particularly in the family law context because the mother had very strong views about son's spouse. And the court in that the same court in that case said that it wasn't a sham, even though everything indicated that it was 
probably a gift and it probably, you know, it was just long and complicated, but, but basically they respected the fact that there was documentation in place and the documentation was correct and therefore they would, they would respect the black letter law of the documentation. I think that if you look at the commentary on cases like that, the bottom line is if you're going to do this sort of an arrangement, you, you need to get your documentation right and it needs to be by the book, you know, registering the mortgages, delivering documents. Ideally, there would be cash movements through bank accounts that could be pointed to as actual real evidence of value passing. Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide. So the five layers of asset protection are, number one, contractual insurance, i.e. your professional indemnity insurance. Number two, the corporate veil, i.e. moving your business into a company, operating out of a company. Number three, using silos, which we didn't really touch on today, but which we discussed at length in episode 396. I already mentioned it in the intro. You probably remember how Andrew spoke about putting each project into a separate operating company and then having the cash and the holding and all your tools and expensive equipment in one company and all your staff and HR and services in another. All this is to protect you. Andrew calls this structural insurance and my gut feeling is that he means the corporate veil as well as the use of silos with that. So both two and three are structural insurance. The corporate veil as well as the using of silos. Number four, moving assets away from risk, i.e. if you are the at-risk spouse, moving all assets away from you into your spouse's name. And number five, creating an asset protection trust that then holds a charge over your assets. Andrew calls this an equity split. So if your asset protection trust holds a mortgage over your family home and slash or an OPEP over all your other assets, then it is much harder for creditors to grab those. But none of these layers is 100% watertight or can get pierced. Your professional indemnity insurance has terms and conditions. A DPN can pierce through your corporate veil. A court can attack your corporate silos. A liquidator might claw back assets you transfer to your spouse. And a court might rule against your asset protection trust. But the more layers you have, the more protected you are. Two layers is better than one, three better than two, and so on. In the next episode, episode 398, let's look closer at option number five, the Asset Protection Trust, a.k.a. Equity Split. Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers will tell you what to look out for. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.